Um, this morning we're starting with verse 17 of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12:17. And last week I I really enjoyed that discussion we had on Hebrews 12:16, and that really turned some lights on for me. And I got uh, in fact I got so excited about think, just thinking of the applications there are to Hebrews 12:16 in the evangelical church, that whole idea that we talked about that Esau, uh, why was Esau called profane and secular? Because he decided that one meal was of more value than the promises of the covenant. Because it wasn't just the birthright that was at issue, because this particular birthright was the one that came from Abraham, Isaac, uh, to these somebody in this family. And so it contained more than just simply, you know, one family's inheritance. It contained, the birthright itself contained the messianic promises. All right? And when Esau despised that, he was despising the covenant. We were talking about this last week, Ryan, and William Lane has some fabulous stuff on this. And so I got so excited about it. I'm already working. I just about have a sermon ready for a week from today. And to, to do a follow-up from the conference on Saturday, I'm going to tell the people at the conference that I have a sermon. And it's going to be based, the entire sermon is going to be based on the book of Hebrews. And the thesis is going to be that the evangelical movement is selling out our birthright for a pot of stew. All right? And and the birthright that we're selling out is the terms of the covenant. All right? And so being how the terms of the covenant is the blood atonement, inasmuch as the blood atonement seems to be of no concern whatsoever and that we prefer popularity in the world or we prefer success or we prefer to be loved by the world or we prefer numbers or whatever it is that we prefer, that whatever that preference is, that compared to the value of the terms of the covenant, it's a pot of stew. And and, and um, I've got the sermon about half done. So thank you for participating last Sunday because I got inspired. That Hebrews 12:16 is unbelievable. I looked up the term blood in, he, in the book of Hebrews is used 20 times. And all but a, one or two of them are directly having to do with covenant promises, either the old or the new. And uh, I think that that's where the battle is has to be fought right now, and that is over the blood atonement. And, I, and, and because that's the one thing that they can't preach and be seeker, sense it. Right? If you preach the blood atonement, then you offend seekers because you tell them that their sin is so bad that God's wrath is directed against it and it requires the shedding of blood for there to be remission. And that's the terms of the covenant. And if we give that up, we just sold out our birthright. So um, you can pray for me that a week from Sunday I, that I stay inspired on this and, and I think I can put a whole sermon together from the book of Hebrews. And I, and I, I think it's a valid implication. It, that's what's necessary hermeneutically. It has to be a valid implication or I'm not teaching the truth, right? And I think that it is because the warnings in Hebrew about, Hebrews about apostasy were people that were wanting to go from the blood atonement that was shed once for all in the heavenly sanctuary before God back to the one that was done in the temple. And I would say, how much worse is it to go from the one shed once for all, before God, for sins, back to no blood atonement at all? 
Now, um, the people that are doing this would say, oh, we still believe in that. Well, then, but you don't preach it. And so how is it going to do anybody any good? I, I, a, a guy came in to buy a couple books and was asking me, how, how do you find a pastor? How do you decide if a pastor is any good? They all say they've got a great res- resume and, you know, and they can do this and they can do that. I said, here's what you do. If the guy's already been a pastor, ask him for tapes of ten consecutive sermons. Not just one, ten. That were preached on consecutive Sundays or whenever he preached. And listen to all ten of them. And you'll find out what he believes. Right? And if in the course of listening to all ten sermons, you never hear anything about the gospel, and you never hear anything about the blood atonement, and you never hear anything about repentance, and you never hear people called to uh, repent and believe the gospel, and you don't hear the terms of the covenant. In ten sermons, you can count on the fact you never will hear it. And in which case, that person should be rejected as a pastoral candidate. Um, similarly, I was listening to um, uh, some tapes by D.A. Carson. He's a very, very famous scholar. and some church wanted to, you know, bring him in to see, you know, what, you know, bring some big name in to try to get their church better, and not knowing really what they're going to get because I mean, they're kind of a, a seeker church. <laughs> D.A. Carson's no, not the he, one. He, he came in and you 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 just observed for five weeks, and he sat down with the board after five weeks, and he said, "Shame on you." I was here for five Sundays, and I didn't see one thing that would differentiate you from a liberal or a Mormon church. Wow. <laughs> you know, but that's, it's not what we, you know, have in our little doctrine in the, in the, you know, in the back of our website. It's, it's what you preach. Right. So it, it's, but that's all over the place. Yes, that's true. And that's why I think is, I'm not being, um, overly alarmist to preach a sermon that we're in danger of selling our birthright. What's that? We already have. Oh, we already have, but. Uh, I think we need to be called on account because who knows what, why? Did, why was Hebrews written to keep them from doing this, or if some did, to warn them to come back? Um, so there, there you go. D. A. Carson can be counted on to speak the truth. I heard him speak in our chapel back in the good old days. This was like in '93 when they would allow somebody like that into chapel at Bethel Seminary. And D. D. Although I don't know they were how happy they were even with him back then, but D. A. Carson came into chapel. And he got up and he preached on Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is he who sitteth not in the seat of corners or sits in the council of the ungodly. And he, and, he, and he said, the problem we have in our evangelical movement is that our scholars are sitting under the council of the ungodly. And rather than being men of God who first and foremost teach and understand the scriptures, what we have is psychologists who also maybe are a Christian or sociologists who say they're Christians. He says, and, and, and what we're doing in our seminaries is sitting under the counsel of the ungodly. Now, he preached that at a chapel. <laughs> I go, wow. <laughs> Needless to say, I ne- never heard him again there. <laughs> but uh, that's D.A. Carson, and uh, I, would, I recommend D.A. Carson to you. And if you get a chance to read some of his books, they're always solid. They're always scholarly. They're enlightening. And you don't see him compromising. All right, so let's look at our passage again. Hebrews 12:16, and then to set up verse 17, because there's a play on words going on here. 
that there should be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now remember last week I said the word godless in the Greek means secular. It's an unusual word. It's not the normal word for godless, but it means secular. And that's what makes this all the more applicable. Our church becomes secular. No different than what, like he said, it could be a liberal church. You wouldn't know the difference. Well, then it's secular. There'd be no um, immoral or secular person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, the play on words is the word for sold, which means could be translated gave up. And the word rejected. There's a grammatical link between those two. So it's sort of like this chiasm, uh, which is the, for the, like our X. And it's a structure that you find like in Romans 1, where it says that because they didn't approve of God, God didn't approve of them, literally. Because they rejected God, God rejected them. But we have the same type of thing going on here. Esau rejected his birthright, gave it up. And so consequently, God rejected Esau. So Esau was the one who took the, the initial action that was rebellious. And the consequent of it was God rejecting him. Uh, William Lane says, uh, well, I got a couple quotes from him. The moment of judgment arrives when God bestows blessing or pronounces rejection. It's not simply Jacob's ruse that defrauded Esau of the promised blessing. His rash action had displayed contempt for the gifts of God and for the covenant by which they were secured. So by uh, showing our lack of concern for the terms of the covenant, like Esau did, what we are doing is showing our contempt for the things of God. And when it comes to something so important as the covenant by which we're saved, being neutral about it equals contempt. All right? And to to give it up for something else equals contempt. And we have nothing more that we should be excited about and talking about and singing about and preaching about and fellowshipping around than the terms of the covenant. That's what, that was everything on the old covenant. And now the, the argument's going to go here that the, from the lesser to greater. Because the next section here, if we get to it, verses 18 through like 22, it goes from a lesser to greater. And the argument goes that if this old covenant that was lesser was so holy that they couldn't even touch the mountain and that they were afraid to have God speak to them, and that they were in fear and trembling and in terror from the fire on the mountain, how much more ought we to show respect from the God who's speaking from heaven, from the Mount Zion, from the assembly, the blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. So there's a lesser or greater argument that the terms of the, of the new covenant are greater, that the awesomeness of God in the new covenant is even greater, and that the, the danger of neglecting it Neglecting so great a salvation would have greater consequences. And look how bad the consequences were back then. That's the, that's the argument and has been used several different times in the book of Hebrews. The, 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 if this was awesome, imagine how much more awesome it is what we're dealing with right here. So he sold out his birthright and afterwards, okay, now later he's thinking he wants the blessing 
Afterwards, he's rejected. And here's what Lane says then. Esau's thoughtless action in relinquishing his birthrights in order to secure a meal for which he hungered demonstrated his character as pornos, which is the word for immoral, uh, from, from which we get our word pornography, pornos. And as we said last week, it's used here in a figurative sense of being a covenant breaker. Just like in the, and that comes from the old covenant. Remember when Israel apostatized away from God? She was called a whore. Alright? And immoral. So it's an analogy of an unfaithful wife. So Israel being unfaithful to God would be like a wife being unfaithful to a husband. So when this word is used of Esau, it was Esau being unfaithful to God. Okay? And in that sense, it made him immoral as an immoral, because of being in his, uh, Secular. Okay, so I'm back to Lane here. His character is pornos, apostate, and baby loss, secular. The drastic consequence was the permanent loss of blessing and the awesome reality of divine rejection. Um, now remember in Hebrews, we've, we've come across this topic before. Now a lot of you weren't here. This was a few years ago. And, we used to have like this circle and maybe a second one, but we were we've been doing this for several years, and and we've seen the repeated themes in Hebrews, and there's one in Hebrews six. Now the question is, is it possible to repent after apostasy? And Hebrews six would indicate it is not. And so it was hanging over their head at least this, what I call theoretical possibility, um, that should one truly apostatize that one would end up like Esau and not be able to find their way back. And so it's a dire warning. Now, I don't have time to go back over the whole argument we did when I was in Hebrews 6, but I wrote a paper on it. You can find it on our website on Hebrews 6, 4 through 10 on apostasy. And I'll give you the short answer. I came to the conclusion that it's an unactualized theoretical possibility. Now that we got that settled, we'll go on to the... I'm glad I answered that. Uh, well, let me tell you, here's an analogy uh, that we used earlier here in this class. Is it possible that humans dis- could destroy the entire world with nuclear bombs? Yeah, is that true? That's a real possibility. There's enough nuclear bombs to destroy all life on planet Earth. So if we are issued a warning, if we started a worldwide nuclear war, and everybody pushed the buttons that they have to push and sent off all of their intercontinental ballistic missiles, that we could destroy all life on planet Earth. That is an unactualized theoretical possibility. right? Now, is it valid to give a warning about that? See, see what some people argue, that if it doesn't actually happen, then it's not a real warning. But I'd say it's a real, a nuclear holocaust is a real warning, even though it's never actually happened. Alright? And so, apostasy for the Christian would be like that. Now, I don't believe that this nuclear holocaust is ever going to happen just because I, the Bible reserves the right for God to judge his own world. He's not going to let man do it. It will burn up, but it's going to be God, not man that does it. Now, it's just as real, and we should take it with just as much seriousness that if I were to renounce, God forbid, renounce the terms of the covenant, 
go back into the world and uh, renounce Christ, renounce the blood atonement, and go back to trusting self and sin and living for self, that I would be an apostate and that my heart would be darkened and hardened and there would be no light in me and that I would be lost and I would stay that way. And believing that, I don't do it. Because the warning is used by the Holy Spirit to effectually keep God's people from apostasy. Now, then the question is, but isn't apostasy sometimes a real thing? We'd say yes. As in the case of Judas. I believe Judas was a real apostate. Now, and that's another way that some scholars interpret Hebrews chapter 6 and these other warnings. But I would say, in that case, they went out from us because they weren't of us. Yes. What about that evangelical uh, Templeton, I think his last name was, uh, from the 40s or 50s? Uh, you ever hear of Yeah, Templeton. Well, there's a Templeton Prize, I know, for uh, progress in religion. Um, well, <clears throat> well, he went back to college, and uh, then he renounced. He renounced. Yeah, there's the atheists. But he was just like Billy Graham. He would okay. go off and then, well, there, I know who you're talking about. Goitner. Marjo. Marjo. There was a movie made about it on one of these apostates. There was a Marjo who was a Pentecostal preacher. And we, when I was in Bible college, they showed that movie just to warn us. Because he was in Assemblies of God. Uh, and that's the Bible college I was in. And this Marjo was raised, and he was like a child evangelist. And he would preach and he'd miracles and all this stuff. And then he became a total apostate and, and went off to live in... Uh, sin and degradation, and they made a movie about his life. I think it was Marjo Goitner. Anybody else remember that, Marjo? Yeah. It's, it is weird. Now, I'd say that's a apostate. Now, what's that? Well, then, who's, and then there's that, that atheist that used to be a, a charismatic pastor in town, who Dan Litsky's been preaching to. <laughs> He, he, Dan Litsky gave that atheist uh, pastor, um, a former pastor, my article on apostasy, and the guy emailed me. He says, "I think you remember Dan Litsky thinks I'm an apostate, and that, and he wants me to repent." But he says, "I'm not going to repent because I'm a much happier person being an atheist than I ever was being a Christian." And he says, "My family's raised. I've become wealthy. Uh, I have good health." I have everything I could want in life. Why should I go back to all this misery of thinking there's some God that's angry with me? Yes, he is. But that's what a real apostate looks like. Now, uh, if you believe in the perseverance of the saints, then you would say the Judases of the world appeared to be Christian, but really weren't. Okay, well, yeah, right. There's a, a couple things. There is a whole section of, pretty prominent section of, of Christianity that actually pronounces that you can apostatize and still inherit eternal life. Um, it's the whole... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the easy believism, the no lordship salvation. Yeah, I mean, they say you can... You can be an apostate and still go to heaven, they yeah, say. You can curse God, You can, but if you did have this moment of quote-unquote belief, you can... You know, they'll still be in heaven. They'll still be in heaven. Yeah. Whereas... The the only way to legitimately, I think, um, take the scriptural evidence we have is that yes, there. If if someone uh, apostatizes, they uh, again, Bob quoted First John. They prove 
they went out from us because they never were really of us. Right. And I think that really is helpful. And the whole issue of warnings are, are there. And the warnings go out to the whole church. Yeah, amen. And, and the elect will will heed them. And the way I, one of the ways I use an analogy about warnings is imagine a father with all of with with his his children, and there's a there's a cliff off of the playground. And he's watching his children, but he tells his children, "Don't go near that cliff. If you go too close to that cliff, and you, you you're going to fall over, and you're going to and you'll die." Now the the parent, if he sees a, his one of his children wandering too close, we'll get him. Is, is going to go get him and bring him back. <laughs> but does that make the warning invalid? Does that mean that warning has no meaning? No, no, it's it's a way to keep us away from that cliff. Yeah. The Lord's trying to keep us yes, from falling exactly. over a cliff. If, if we start wandering too much, we have a shepherd that has this big staff, which is going to take us <laughs> and bring us back. That's Hebrews 12. We're talking about the discipline of the Lord. Yep. If you're truly the Lord's, he won't let you fall off the cliff, but he may discipline you severely. You may end up in some severe situations, but it would be better to go through the worst imaginable thing in this life than to be lost for eternity. Amen. And so God will uh, even turn somebody over to Satan, like in 1 Corinthians 5. You might, yeah, he might have you die so that you don't go apostatize later. So I would get that idea right out of your mind about committing apostasy. Okay. Yeah, in, on the one of communion. Yeah. Uh, I've had I've heard people say that, and I think they got a good point. They say God will is so committed to your salvation if you know Him that He would kill you before allowing you to go too far. You'd rather have that happen. Yeah. Die once rather than die twice. Uh, yeah, and uh, that's uh, I'm not being melodramatic. That's talk. The Bible talks about it. Yes, Mike. I, I think one reason that the Bible brings up apostasy is that you know that you will be in a struggle. And that there will be forces attempting to get you to apostatize. In other words, you're going to have a battle. You need to be alert. If you're truly of God, he will not allow you to be lost. But he's telling you there will be a battle. You're going to be out there. There are going to be forces that want to give you perverted truth, that want to get you off the mark. It's all another... uh, uh, enabling of you because now you're informed. Uh, you can, you know, use the war on terror as an analogy. You know, for for years we neglected it. Uh, when we had cities in in the East Coast get blown up, the buildings go down. Now we're we're changing our whole orientation. And if you know that there's going to be a battle, if you know that there is enemy out there attempting to subdue you, to undermine you, uh, to undermine your doctrine, then you're prepared because you're looking for those attacks and uh, you'll be able to fight successfully against them. Amen. Um, Okay, now let's go back to our passage here. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Very sobering, isn't it? Very sobering. Now, I'm going to read some more of Lane, a brilliant evangelical scholar. He says, the parenthetical phrase, and he gives the Greek for he found no opportunity for repentance, serves to underscore the ultimate seriousness of a rash and thoughtless rejection of the gifts of God. 
The objective possibility of repentance is created only by the action of God and is conditioned by a time limit determined by Him. Isn't that, is that something? The possibility of repentance is created by God and there's a time limit. And the real scary thing is we don't know how long it is. All right? And no one knows how many more minutes, hours, days, months, years they have on the face of the earth. I told you the story about the the lady who asked me to visit her father in the hospital who almost died. And I went to visit him, and he was in his 80s, and he had been drunk ever since World War II. All right? And how he lived that long, nobody knows. And so I went in to talk to him about repentance and the gospel as he laid there. And I shared the gospel with him, told him he needed to repent, turn to Jesus Christ. And he says, well, my daughter's been telling me that. Well, his daughter was the one who asked me to go tell him. Thought maybe he'd listen to a preacher. And so he says, well, there may be something to that, but I don't want to do it right now. I says, well, why not right now? He says, because I'm doing a little better and I think I might get out again. In other words, there's a chance I could go back to drinking. And I don't want to become a Christian just in case they let me out of the hospital. So now there's somebody skating on the thin ice. thinking, Well, you know, there might be another day. And uh, that scared me. I, mean, I walked away from that veterans hospital thinking, oh, man, Satan is a deceiver, isn't he? Yes, Steve. Um, I was a Christian before I got cancer. There's no doubt that I've come a lot closer to God since I got cancer. You know? And my doctors say that I'm probably going to die, but not necessarily. Now, I know a lot of people are praying for me. And I guess I do want people to pray that I won't die. It's more important. I always just want people to pray that I'll be where I, the best, closest place I can be with God. And... And I have always, I believe for a long time that I was going to be long before, I mean, 20 years ago, that I would be around for the rapture. And I still want to believe that. Because the rapture will make us perfect. Thank you, Steve. God bless you. You know, um, it reminds me, uh, um, uh, what was it? Phyllis Wright, you, what, your husband, I'm, I'm Gary. Uh, when I visited him, I think four days before he died, had cancer, and, and um, what a what a great testimony! How his everything was to him was about the gospel, his love for the gospel. And Phyllis was there, and, and Gary says, "Well, the only thing is, I would like to have the rapture happen. I know I'm going to die, but I'd rather have what what Steve said. I would rather have the rapture because then my family would go with me, and we'd all go at the same time." And um, but he said. Nevertheless, whatever the Lord does. And that was like Wednesday and then Friday he was with the Lord. Something like that. So, um, that's what faith looks like. Now, the, the warnings in here are suggesting that uh, the time is borrowed, no matter what it is. And I've heard MacArthur talking about that a lot lately. And it's such a good word. And when people ask uh, John MacArthur, well, why did all these people die in a tsunami? And why did all these people die in New Orleans? And... And why did God do this and that? And he says, no, the bigger answer, the bigger the question ought to be, why does God allow anybody to live on for one more day in their sin? 
Because God isn't required to, to, to sit by and listen to His name be blasphemed by sinners. And so what we know, according to MacArthur, and I agree with him, is that God's a merciful God, and so He allows life to go on, but He isn't obligated to. All right? And so every person that has a breath to breathe today, today, while it's still called today, don't harden your hearts as in a day of provocation. Yes. Me of Gershner once said that, you know, they always talk about the problem of pain. Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? And Gershner says, we're asking the wrong questions. The question is, why is there pleasure? <laughs> the whole world's sinful and wretched, and, he's, and the Lord is still allowing people to have pleasure. That's the, that's the real yeah. problem. He, the, yeah, the, the Lord allows people who, who literally blaspheme his holy name. Yeah. Like that atheist who, who was telling me how much he's enjoying life. God's merciful, is he not? Now, well, did anyone would perish, but all would come to repentance. Now, now back to uh, William Lane. Uh, the objective possibility of repentance created only by the action of God is conditioned by a time limit determined by him. That's what we were talking about. It does not depend on human will. God alone determines its beginning and its end. Now, that's another important thing. In my next article, we'll talk about that. Repentance is a gift from God. All right? And it says in Acts that when, when the Gentiles were saved, that the apostles rejoiced that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. It says in 2 Timothy 2 that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all, patient when wronged, in meekness, instructing those who are in opposition, if perhaps God grants them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they recover themselves from the snare of Satan, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now, uh, that we're going to have a discussion, by the way. Uh, Elizabeth, this was your idea. Um, by the way, did you, did you get through that article? Did, did, it, did it give you a headache? <laughs> Okay, I just wrote an article about free will that is very, very difficult to read, and I apologize up front, but that's just how complicated this, this issue is. But Elizabeth had a great idea, and we're going to execute her idea. After everybody's got a chance to read it, it's guaranteed to raise questions, right? So we're going to devote a Sunday school like this to have a roundtable discussion on that article about free will. And you can come, as you read the article, write down your questions, What's this about? What, why was Edward saying this? Why does Geisler say this? And, and I, you know, I have different positions. Why is Luther saying this? And bring it here. And it, we'll do this in a few weeks after everybody has a chance to digest it and get over their headache. And then, and then come in here and you can ask a question and I'll answer it the best we can. And, and I want, I need Ryan there that Sunday too. Yeah, I need backup. <laughs> I want somebody else to blame. <laughs> hey, Ryan. That's a very good question. Why, that's such a good question. I'm going to have Ryan answer it. It's like the old story where the guy switched places with his chauffeur. And, and they asked the, the chauffeur was telling the, the, the speaker that he'd heard him give the speech so much that he could give the speech better than, than the speaker could. And he says it wasn't fair that he's the chauffeur and he just chauffeurs the guy around and he gets all the accolades. And so the guy says, okay, uh, let's change. I'll put on your chauffeur's uniform. You put on my suit. And we get to the next place, you go in and give the speech. 
So the guy did. He went in there. He gave the speech just as good. In fact, better than that guy had ever given it. Applause. They loved it. But then it came time for questions. And so somebody, some one of these brainy college students asked this really difficult question. And the chauffeur says, why? He says, that's such a simple question. I'm surprised they let somebody as dumb as you into this university. And just to show you how dumb that question is, I'm going to have my chauffeur answer it. <laughs> so sometimes you've got to be more shrewd than smart, right? All right, so, uh, but here it says that I'm agreeing with William Lane. It doesn't depend on the human will. Well, what does it say here? He saw for it, um, but he couldn't find it because of being under this judgment of reprobation. Um, he says here again, William Lane, repentance is the other side of faith in the gospel. It is the no spoken to the old age. Um, now, now, listen to this in i got to warn us about something, okay? It is the no spoken to the old age which results in a yes addressed to the new age of God's sovereignty. Now, every time you see the word new age, it doesn't mean the new age movement, okay? What he means is the old age was, you know, the old covenant, and the new is the age of messianic salvation. So nobody has a patent on the phrase new age, all right? So somebody wants to say, well, William Lane's a new ager. no. He's talking about the age of God's sovereignty. Within this perspective, one can repent only as long as God's grace is available. That means uh, This means something definite. Today, while God's voice can be heard. Now, he's talking about means of grace. Ryan and I talk about that all the time here. And that's why I was willing to write this article on free will. Because what people are trying to do is create a man-centered theology that it depends on human ability rather than on God's grace. All right? And the fact is... We, we are closer to God when we realize how utterly unable we are. When we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the law of God is brought to bear against us, when we realize that we are hopelessly bound into our own sin and that we'll always abide under God's wrath and that we'll never be able to perfectly obey God and that, the, and that uh, we are alarmed, become alarmed about our own sinful condition, and then, as the gospel is preached to us, God uses the foolishness of the message preached to save those who will believe. As God's means are brought to bear, the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the terms of the gospel are proclaimed, and as Romans 10 says, that God uses the means of the message preached to quicken dead sinners, to grant repentance, and, to, and, and so that people would uh, repent and believe and become new creatures in Christ. Now, the people actually do repent. They actually do believe. They actually do come alive. But the cause of it is the gracious activity of God, not the quickening of some innate human power. That's where I'm differing with most of the evangelical movement today. And I'm of the opinion that this belief in human ability is what led to the secret movement, which is leading to apostasy. Yes, Jan. Regarding apostasy, if, is it, does it actually mean that it's an... A, once you create apostasy, does that mean you can never repent of it? Or is it a final... According, according to... According to Hebrews, 
if someone commits this sort of apostasy, they will never come back. All right? Now, we can't know, we don't know the heart. Well, that, good point. That's right here. Jam, very good question. I don't know that I can answer it, but no, I'm just kidding. That's a very good question, and I think my assistant pastor can answer that one. Let's go back to our passage that, that, that comes out of this passage. Because here he desired it and couldn't. But according to the, this Greek scholar, William Lane, he believes, for he found no place for repentance, is parenthetical. And what he desired wasn't repentance. What he desired was the blessing. All right. So what? So and, if, and that agrees with the account in the Old Testament. Did not remember. Oh, we got to look it up. Um. Oh boy. I think it's Genesis twenty-seven thirty-three to forty. A uh, Denny, could you look that one up? Genesis twenty-seven thirty-three to forty. If you remember the account, when he came to get his blessing. It was gone. And so what he desired to get was a blessing, and he couldn't get it back. Yes? So, if Cain is a gift as of the Holy Spirit, yes. you shouldn't desire it for that, would you? Because if you create a prophecy, and Cain is a gift of the Holy Spirit, you would not be gone back. Right. You wouldn't desire repentance. It's like that... The, I go, I'll go back to the case of the, of the atheist who used to be a charismatic pastor. And Dan, lucky him, he has Dan Litsky preaching to him. Uh, well, he is. He, because Dan won't give up on anybody. God bless Dan. And so he's, he's trying to get this guy to repent. But in the case of that response I got from the charismatic apostate guy, who's now an atheist, he says, I don't have any desire for that. I'm happy. Why would I want to go back to Christianity and have to have all this guilt? I don't want it. I don't want that. I like it better the way I have it now. So you're right. There's no desire for repentance in the apostate. Now there was a desire to get the blessing back. Do you see? Do you see the difference? All right. That's kind of Judas is similar. I mean, if you look at the account of Judas, he was sorry about something, but you know, instead of going to the cross. He went to. He went to the San. No, he went to the Sanhedrin. Well, and then threw it back, and then he, and rather than going to the cross, which would have been repentance. Yes. He went to another tree to hang himself. Yeah, he went and hung himself. So, so Judas didn't repent. Now, let me let me tell you that what what won't happen, okay? Based on your question, Jan, and this is what a lot of people misunderstand Reformed doctrine uh, to to be saying, which we're not saying. There's never going to be a case where a sinner under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, comes and says, I know I've sinned. I know the gospel's true. I know that Jesus is raised from the dead. And I want to confess him as my Lord and Savior. And God says, no, you can't. That's a non-case. Okay? It says, all of the Father gives will come. And that I will receive and I'll lose none of them. And if you come, he'll no way cast you out. There's no such thing as a person crying out for salvation and willing to come on God's terms and God saying, no, sorry, you're not one of the elect. That's a non, non-thing. It doesn't happen. It isn't that way. It's an empty category. That's it. It's an empty category if you ever studied mathematics. Okay? It's an empty category. The one who does come 
is because, as you were saying, convicted by the Holy Spirit. Yes. With uh, Judas, uh, I mean, uh, he was one of the twelve that Christ called. Yes. It gave him gave him power to do miracles and go out. Yep. So I'm, I'm wondering what you know if he wasn't one of us. Well, the thing is, is go ahead. Uh, what's interesting is even before that, Jesus says, have I not chosen you the twelve? And then he says, yeah, one of you is a devil. And this was a, a good at least year yeah. before that happened. And there's several things. Well, no, and he said that he, had a, he was a devil from the beginning. Devil from the beginning. Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, so, and, and there's all sorts of clues throughout the gospel that, Jude, that Judas was never one of us. Yeah, I remember John said he was stealing money out of the money bag, claiming he wanted to help the poor. But yet he went out with them and did miracles. That's that's a possible that's a good point because miracles can be done by people who aren't really Christians. It happens. I was just reading it last night. There's, I'm reading a book uh, called um, Fair, Clear, and Terrible by Shirley Nelson. That's about a group that existed from 1887 to about 1920. That was a religious sect uh, following this guy named Frank Sanford, who was this weird mixture of Christ, true Christian things. And obviously false prophet. And he went to jail for manslaughter because he thought the Holy Spirit told him to sail a ship to Greenland in the winter. And six people died on his ship, so they threw him in jail. But he, he kept with the Lord and he kept so-called. So, so the guy is a false prophet. He claimed he was David and Elijah. But in this, in this Shirley Nelson's dad grew up in that group. And so she had all this inside information. It's a fabulous book, by the way. It's fascinating reading. And what happened was, I was just reading last night, there were, there was nine people with tuberculosis in their group. No, there were ten with tuberculosis. And as Frank Sanford, the false prophet, said God told him he wants those people to be healed, but if they're going to be healed, they got to get up and get out of the sanitarium and come up to the hill. They had this hill where they had, you know, the holy people living. And nine of them, Hardly able to breathe with tuberculosis, which was incurable back then, uh, did come out and all basically on their deathbed and just haltingly walked, crawled, however they had to, to get up on the hill. And all nine of them were healed and lived long lives. And the one that wouldn't come out died. Now, if think, I was reading that and I was going, wow, do you see how easy it would be to deceive? I mean, if you were there, you would think this Frank Sanford was the man of God he claimed to be. He pronounced healing for nine people if they'd leave and they were all healed. But if you examine his life and teachings, he was obviously a heretic. So you could be deceived. So to Judas, I don't have any problem with Judas going around doing miracles. And that's why we're and so will Antichrist. That's why we're called, yeah, in Second Thessalonians 2, or chapter 2 talks about that. That's why we're called as Christians. It's very comforting. There's only one miracle. That we are called to center upon. And that's the resurrection. Yeah. And that's the authentication yeah. of everything. Unless somebody else can predict their own resurrection from the dead on the third day yeah. and then live a sinless life, too. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yes, the Antichrist will perform miracles. So that one that I read about last night was very compelling. And if you were there, you would have thought this was surely a man of God. But yet he claimed he was Elijah. Uh, that was prophesied about in Malachi. He was the Elijah that would come at the end of the age. He was a false prophet.
Isn't the difference between repentance and remorse? Yes. One was remorseful, but not repentant. Judas was remorseful. He went and threw the money back into the people. And then he went out and hung himself. It helps me. I, I, visuals help me. And I kind of pictured two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And rotten fruit comes from rotten roots. So if you're feeding from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can say all you want, but the fruit is still going to... And, and for someone to, to, to go from remorse to repentance... They really have to change from you know, feeding from one tree to the other. Well, good illustration. So, you, so um, true repentance always brings forth true fruit, right? It would be evidenced by fruit. Now, what we're saying, back to your uh, comment, Jan, did he desire repentance? Well, it said he, what, what, what it's saying here is he desired a blessing. All right? And desiring it, he couldn't get it. Now, who's going to read that? Denny. Are you still here? <laughs> Sorry. A lot of people have been known to get bruised fingers from holding a, a spot in their Bible. Starting at 33? Uh, 27, what did I say? 33 through 40. Try that. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me, so that I ate of all of it, for you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him your, your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants, and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. All right, there was his blessing. It's not a blessing. We have away from the fertility of the earth. Now, notice, you can see from what Danny read there, I hope you could hear that, that this idea of the tears was from Genesis. Right? He had a bitter cry, and with tears he sought what? Not repentance, but blessing. He wasn't repenting because he was saying Jacob stole the blessing, and he never even mentioned the fact that he sold it. See, a repentant person would come and say, Father, I despised the birthright and sold it, and I've sinned. Forgive me. But he didn't come and confess his sin of selling birthright. He came and, and, and was remorseful about the consequences, and that's not repentance. Yes? What's that verse that says, Godly sorrow brings repentance leading to salvation? Is that in Second Corinthians? Yes, it is in Second Corinthians. Which one was it? Second Corinthians 7, 9. <laughs> um, and so this godly sorrow comes from the Holy Spirit convicting us. Yes? Would it be a stretch to say when he says, 
Um, do, do you have, don't, do you, don't you have more than one blessing? It, could you say that that's all of the other churches looking to go to God, that you don't have to go to Jesus? Oh, trying to find a blessing outside of the covenant. Good illustration. Yeah, if you try to find blessing outside of the terms of the covenant, you will not find it. There is no blessing without covenant faithfulness. That's true in the new as it is in the old. Is that right? That if you spurn the covenant, you're not blessed. Now, all the terms of the covenant are the blood atonement. Right? And so you can't neglect the, the blood atonement and find blessing. Now, you might feel blessed. That atheist, did you have something you want to say? I was just saying, you, you may not be blessed, but you have purpose. <laughs> you'll have purpose. <laughs> yeah, right. You may not have a blessing, but you'll definitely have a purpose. Uh, uh, Mike. Well, we're talking about repentance. And, uh, repentance means turning away. But the blessing, I believe, is what you turn to, and that God is the blessing himself. He is, he is what all the blessings flow from. What he's promised you and what he wants for you is the blessing. And, and all of that flows through Jesus Christ. And, you know, this, this old covenant was the foreshadowing of Christ. Mm-hmm. And Esau was, uh, you know, in line to uh, be a part of that. But when he rejected it, uh, he chose... Something else. Stew. Yeah, he chose stew. Yeah. And that's what we're getting today. You go to church, you don't get the gospel, you get stew. Worldly stew. You know, we, we think of a, of a sinful life, uh, and okay, we repent, we quit doing the sin. No. The repenting means you turn to God, and all the blessings are found in God. All light, all, everything is found in Him. And he'll give you that desire to desire him. And, and you know, that, that's the whole thing. It's not, you know, it's not getting a better life like this guy who, you know, he's healthful and he doesn't have any bills or anything. Why should he go back? No. The joy is in God himself Amen. and what he's done for you. And so you're saying repentance isn't then just giving up some vice, but it's actually turning from serving the world, the self, and the devil and coming to God on his terms and desiring him. Right, and that's where the blessing is. Yeah, that's where the blessing is. And so if you're looking for a temporal blessing, then that's what Esau wanted, stew. That's temporal. Uh, yes. Re- remind me of your name again. Bob. Bob? <laughs> oh, whoever, who would have a name like that? All right, Bob. Yes. <laughs> Is the reason because Jacob and Rebecca deceived Isaac? Mm-hmm. Was that okay because he had the birthright? No, I actually I preached through this. Uh, well, I don't know about whenever I was in that part of Genesis, but there there's two things that intersect here, and it's, it seems mysterious to us because if you read about this story in Romans nine, it said that it happened in order that God's purposes might stand that pre-existed the birth of the children because he told the mother, the elder will serve the younger. But if you read about it from the perspective of Hebrews 12, you see human guilt. My conclusion is that both things are true. All right? That it's wrong to deceive and that there's consequences for deceiving, but yet God himself was the one to determine 
that the blessing would go to Jacob, according to Romans 9, and according to the, the text itself in, in Genesis. So uh, I was mentioning that book that you loaned me, um, D.A. Carson, again. Yeah, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So it's not either or, it's both and. So God determined that it would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But on the scene of history, you have sin, you have deception, and and really uh, Jacob and his mother were guilty of unbelief and doubt. Because had, had his mother believed what God said, she wouldn't worry about how it worked out. She wouldn't have to take things into her own hands. She could have just trusted God that the blessing is going to go to Jacob because God said it would. So she's still responsible for her sin. Yes. Yeah, that, there's an echo from Sarah. Good, very good point. It's an echo of Sarah. She did the same thing. Well, God said that she'd have his child. Well, it's not happening, so why don't we try this thing? Okay. Okay. I that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's it's at least doubting. I would say, if you had no doubt, if you had no doubts, you would just keep trusting God. Yes, she does. But remember the guy in Mark that said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Uh, believers doubt. Okay? But believers ultimately trust God. And so the Lord help us with our doubts because why do we get tempted? Well, because it doesn't seem real. Is heaven going to really happen? Is this going to, well, it's getting impatient and trying to do it your own way. And, and that, how many of you know that gets you in trouble? <laughs> I, I think I'll do it my own way. Remember you were talking about how you know a real theme in Hebrews is is that the temptation was to go back to the, the tangible. Yes. And what's interesting here, unbelief is needing something tangible rather than what you can't and see. What's interesting here is the blessing at this point in, in the story of Esau and Jacob wasn't tangible. It was it was it was a blessing. It was something that was unseen right. in the future. But Esau went for that which was tangible. tangible. I'm going to I'm going to use that in that sermon because the reason for mysticism and the emergent church and all this other stuff coming into evangelicalism is because of unbelief. We can't believe in a savior who's seated at the right hand of God. We need to have a tangible experience. So you have cataphatic prayer. You have uh, labyrinths, you have yoga, you have something to make your spirituality more tangible rather than just hearing and believing the words of God. And a lot of apostasy comes about because of the need for something tangible, which is precisely what was going on in Hebrews. Oh, we ran out of time. I wanted to give this. Let me give this quote. All right, quick, and then we'll be done with this verse. i got to at least do one verse today. <laughs> William Lane. Uh, it must be good because I said wow here. <laughs> <laughs> Would I be wrong? <laughs> he says, <laughs> Esau is brought to the attention of the assembled house church as the person in whom the apostasy addressed in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 and 10, 26 to 31 is realized. A reckless <clears throat> disregard for God and his gifts is reprehensible because it entails a willful rejection of a divine vocation. This is the essence of apostasy. 
By descriptive analogy, there can be no opportunity for repentance for the Christian who renounces his heavenly calling, who shows contempt for the blessings of the new covenant secured by Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross. There remains only a certainty of inescapable judgment and rejection by God. That is, wow, it's, it's awesome, and it's, but it's real. That's the message in Hebrews. Even in Esau's blessing, he gave up his birthright, and in his blessing, he will throw off the yoke. And the blessing was the messianic, and Christ says, my yoke. Yeah, so he's throwing off the messianic yoke. All right, I, I, I'm sorry. I get, we're we're going to go until we're going to miss our coffee and donuts. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> this is Minnesota, you know. I'm sure when you get out to Washington, they won't have any coffee and donuts. <laughs> Anyhow, could you remember set those chairs up against the pillars, uh, kind of long here, so everybody can fellowship? Okay, next week we we will go to verse 18. <laughs>